at the end of the day, America leading and leaning forward is a positive for our national security, our economic security, and for the average American. It is the week of October 11th, and welcome to episode 101 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and Fault Lines host. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive on the National Security Institute's past, present, and future with founder and executive director, Jamil Jaffer. Jamil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Les. So first of all, for listeners who are are new or who don't know much about the National Security Institute, explain exactly what NSI does and what it exists for. So, you know, NSI was founded four years ago uh, at the Anderson Scalia Law School uh, with the idea that we needed to bring together a bipartisan group of national security experts who believed in America leaning forward in the world, leading the world with a strong military, a strong intelligence community, a due regard for privacy and civil liberties, but an America that was present and active and forward-leaning in the world. Um, you know, if you look today at uh, either party, uh, frankly, you look at the majority of Congress, you look at the last, uh, the last two or three presidents, uh, there's been a consistent theme that America should step back from the world, uh, that America should be more focused at home. Uh, none of these presidents have said we should be completely gone, and members of Congress aren't saying that, but their view of America's role in the world is certainly not one of American leadership in a significant forward-leaning way. And so uh, we had this sense that there, that view still existed in a lot of places here in Washington, D.C., out in America, that the American people uh, actually are interested in that, although they may not they may not be thrilled with certain conflicts, or they may want, they might want troops home in some capacity or the like. But the American people generally want America leading the world, that we hadn't seen a lot of that out in the world. So we brought together this group of bipartisan experts to, one, uh, educate students here at the law school. We already had an existing uh, program, the Homeland and National Security Law Program, uh, that we expanded into the National Security Law and Policy Program. Uh, we created a master's in law. Um, and we also have this think tank mission where we're educating policymakers uh, in both the legislative and executive branch. We're for most fo- more focused on the leg- legislative branch today, um, but we do both. So we're both an academic center here at George Mason uh, and also a think tank out, out in the larger uh, American community. You just mentioned that NSI is now more focused on the legislative branch. Explain what you mean by that, please. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Les, you know, we're a small organization. We have about seven full-time employees. Um, and so, you know, when you're trying to uh, to affect policy and inform policy with uh, with uh, information uh, from experts uh, like the folks that we have at NSI, both our advisory board and our and our fellows, um, which of which we have uh, a number uh, who have served in the government or in the intelligence community or in the national security community um, or up and coming in those areas or in the technology community. Um, and so, as you're trying to inform policy, you have to decide: okay, who am I going to inform? Right? Am I going to inform uh, the various agencies, the executive branch that work on national security policy, the White House, the National Security Council, the Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, Department of State, right? Uh, Department of Homeland Security, or are you going to try and inform uh, members of Congress on Capitol Hill, uh, in the Senate, the House, the committees, the committee staff, the staff of those members of Congress? Or both. And when we began at NSI, our thought was we'll try to inform as many people as possible. We'll try to get our uh, knowledge and expertise in the hands of as many people as possible. What you realize quickly uh, with the small organization is that you can't do everything. Uh, you can't be everything to everyone. You can't cover all the issues in the world. And so over time, this actually less was, was honestly a learning for me as a leader. Um, I, I came to realize from a lot of coaching from our deputy executive director, Jessica Jones, um, you as one of our leadership team members, I mean, a number of other folks, uh, not just uh, over the course of the first year, but over the course of the last four years, that you can't do everything. And I might, and me, Jamil, I might have a million great ideas. Uh, truth be told, only a handful of them are actually really great. And probably only a handful of those ought to actually be implemented because you can only do a handful successfully. 
particularly the small staff. And so we spent a lot of time trying to think about how can we focus and narrow. Some of that is focusing on the legislature for now versus the executive branch. Some of that is focusing the issue areas that we focus on. Last year, we decided to focus on China and tech innovation and national security. Um, this year, we're going to pivot some of that and focus in even deeper on things like global repression, things like supply chain uh, and the like. And so we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how can we do more uh, with less and in a more focused way and have a, as big an impact as possible. Tell me how, you're, how you think about the fact that NSI is embedded in a law school in Northern Virginia. You know, traditionally think tanks are in D.C. They're kind of in the middle of that corridor between the embassies in Northwest and Capitol Hill, you know, to the, towards the Southeast. You're over the river in, in Arlington, Virginia. You're at the George Mason Law School. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage or both? Well, look, I think it's an advantage. And I'll say, I'll say a couple of reasons why. Uh, number one, uh, being out immediately outside of the DC bubble uh, gives you a little bit of space. We're not really that far out of the DC bubble, right? We're, we're a few minutes by car. Uh, we're able to easily get in. Uh, a lot of the folks that are, that are, that are in law school at George Mason are involved in Washington uh, and involved in the political system or the policy system. Um, and so a lot of our students come from that background. Either they want to be there um, or they have come from there. I want to go back perhaps uh, into the, the policymaking arena. Uh, at the same time, we attract a great uh, cadre of faculty members and fellows who benefit from uh, that policymaking space. But what's great about being in Northern Virginia is we also draw from the Northern Virginia technology community, right? There's a vibrant venture capital-backed cybersecurity community here in the Northern Virginia area, associated with some of the government institutions, but also up north of Fort Meade in Maryland, right? And we're able to get a lot of those folks in too, from these up startup companies, from the venture capitalists. Um, and, you know, we haven't left just the DC and the Northern Virginia area, right? We also go out to the West Coast. We have a number of folks um, from, from, the, from, uh, from San Francisco, from the Bay Area, from LA, from Boston, New York, um, and parts in between. And so we've tried to bring together a really interesting group of folks some that have worked in the government before, some that have not worked in government, but are in the technology community, which has an increasingly important impact on national security. And so I think that being outside DC itself and outside the sort of insular movement of everything between Capitol Hill and, and, the, and the White House and the embassies uh, is helpful, but we're not so far removed that we can't contribute effectively and draw from it. We have that benefit of drawing from the technology community. And being at a law school, we're able to talk about some of these hard policy questions in the context of not just law, but the policy also, which is right next door to us, the policy school at the Charter School. So we're going to bring those things together um, and really assemble uh, an interesting set of characters, uh, both uh, both from industry, from the academic community, and from the policymaking community, and really try to solve some of these hard problems uh, sort of right outside the D.C. itself proper. So if you, as you have mentioned, uh, NSI is bipartisan. I might say nonpartisan. You've got yeah. uh, fellows from both parties and from outside the party structure, former civil servants, things like that. But you, in your career, you've worked yeah. for Republicans, as, as I have. What have you learned as you've moved into this nonpartisan, bipartisan realm that may have that surprised you that you you maybe you didn't know four or five years ago well you know i mean i think that what's what was what's always been clear to me is that there is a lot more agreement than there is disagreement between the parties particularly when it comes to national security right um in the main uh historically at least there was a commonality between republicans and democrats that we wanted america to lead in the world at least since the 1950s um since the end of world war ii that America had a critical role to play and that uh, that was a role of leadership, right? That philosophy, that agreement between the two parties, they might have disagreed about how to implement it. Do you do it through diplomacy? Do you do it through, through military might? Do you do it have a little bit of both, right? How forward-leaning are you? Right? There may be some debates about that, but by and large in the main since 1945, that's been the notion of America and our role in the world. Um, in the last decade or so, uh, post 
uh, Gulf War, post uh, long staying conflict in Afghanistan, I think that consensus has begun to decay. And a new consensus is built, right? A new consensus made up of people of both parties and, and, and to extent there are other parties out there uh, where they sort of come together on the other side of the Mobius Strip, where there's an agreement that increasingly America should be isolated from the world, right? That it's okay for America to step back from a leadership role uh, to disengage and really focus on its problems here at home. And to be sure, less as we saw, um, you know, over the over over the last few years, America has a lot of challenges at home, right? We have challenges with race, we have challenges with gender, we have challenges with sexual identity, we have challenges on on hot button issues like abortion and and the like. And yet, that doesn't mean that America can't lead in the world and can't be present in the world and doesn't have to be, right? The reality is that the world is always going to be there and America's always going to be part of it. And the question only is, then is, how, how much do we play a role in it and shape it uh, around, our, around our perspective and our, in our interests, um, or do we let others? Because if, if, if we leave that leadership role, there is a power vacuum that others will step into. We've already seen China do that in a big way. We're increasingly seeing in certain parts of the world Russia do that, right? And we have other adversaries, North Korea, Iran, to name a couple, um, who are happy to take up uh, the mantle of leadership in their in their particular areas, or at least carve out some space for them to operate in ways that are going to be inimical, inimical, bull, inimical, uh, not consistent with anyways, uh, uh, to U.S. national security interests. It's funny. I know what that word means. I clearly cannot pronounce it today, uh, but- uh, It's easier but, uh, It's easier to read than it is to it, say. It is easier to read than to say, thank you, um, but not consistent with U.S. Uh, security uh uh, views on our national security. And so, you know, Les, I think it, it, in a lot of ways, uh, we have seen this decay of agreement and a new agreement form. And in my view, it's an agreement that actually is not good for our country. And so uh, bringing together these people, I think, in this, this group of folks um, in, a, in a way that can present to both sides. And I know people talk about bipartisan, nonpartisan, right? There are really two parties in America today, whether we agree with them or not, there are two parties primarily. And um, there are two parties that look increasingly different than they used to over the last 40 years, 50 years. Uh, they have changed over time. And so, you know, you see uh, on bo- in both parties uh, increasing polarization, increasing moves to the edge of those parties. And then this new consensus beginning at the edge of those parties where, where the edges agree on things. And that's what I think is really, really a fascinating part of the new era. Uh, that we're in, particularly the national security domain. So you mentioned China uh, a couple of years ago. NSI was had had two foci, a couple of different focuses. One was China, one was cyber. Talk about how those two issues, those super kind of meta issues, now uh, uh, work with this dynamic we have seen, where uh, the the edges of the two parties have come together for kind of a retreat from the world stage. Is, how do you how do you see those you know China and cyber uh, reflected in this other phenomenon you just mentioned? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of ways. One, um, you actually do see an increasing consensus amongst both parties uh, on the question of China, and I think the the recent pandemic has had a lot to do with it, and and sort of what's happening in the pandemic, right? We've seen the behavior of the Chinese government during the pandemic, which has been uh, been I think shocking to the world. Uh, we've also seen. Um, uh, the the recognition among the American people about the vulnerability of our supply chain uh, to foreign nations, in particular China, uh, when it came to pharmaceutical precursors to PPE and the like. Um, and so I think that people are increasingly understanding the potential threat that significant reliance on China poses for the United States uh, as a nation. Um, and so uh, and so you've seen a consensus among politicians developing also. There's also a lot of other beha- bad behavior by the Chinese that's going on, including uh, the repression of, of, of religious uh, freedom in that country, the repression of political freedom in that country. We see what's happening in Hong Kong. We see what's currently happening with the rest of Taiwan. We see the 
the internment of over a million Muslims uh, in the Xinjiang province uh, of China, uh, essentially held in modern day gulags um, and, and, and the breaking down of their cultural religious identity. Um, and so we've seen this behavior and there's an increasing consensus in America that that's a problem. Now, what we do about it, however, uh, does fall into this question, this question of isolationism versus engagement, right? You look at the, the hundreds of Chinese warplanes over the last few weeks and months that have invaded uh, Taiwanese airspace. Um, and we've now heard rumors that there are some American trainers on the ground. Uh, but in the past, when these types of Chinese provocative activities have happened, presidents have generally sailed an aircraft carrier through the Taiwan Straits, right? Have made clear that it is the intent of the United States to defend Taiwan from any Chinese incursion. You haven't seen that kind of reaction from three presidents in a row. President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden. Right? Uh, to be sure, each one of them at times made statements uh, about Chinese actions in the region, uh, expressing concern and the like. But there remains an open question today about whether the U.S. would actually go in and defend Taiwan were it invaded. Right? And that's largely a question that ever since even the U.S. implemented the One China policy, that's never really been a much of a debate. Everyone sort of understood that where China had actually tried to physically invade Taiwan, that would provoke a very stiff U.S. response. Today, I think that's a lot more questioned, uh, whether correctly or incorrectly, it is, it is a lot more questioned. The Chinese seem a lot less concerned about it. Um, and so that's a place where you see there's still, there's more consensus probably than ever before on China. And yet where it matters, it's not clear that we would take action where we ought to. Um, and the same is true on cyber, right? Uh, less so, you know, I think everyone understands cyber is a huge problem. We've seen all three of the last presidents emphasize cyber as an issue they need to deal with. Uh, President Obama made it a key part of his agenda. President Trump uh, loosened up the rules on our, our military intelligence community to conduct actions against, uh, to respond to, to, uh, to nation state activity um, in foreign countries. The Congress partnered with the president uh, to create some new laws and authorities. And the Biden administration, they've appointed a series of really top-notch people uh, throughout the government, National Cyber Director and Chris Inglis, right, the head of CISA, Jen Easterly, a former NSI, uh, NSI fellow, um, you know, and Newbarger at the White House, the highest level White House person on cyber ever appointed, Paul Nakasone, a real leader at NSA and Cyber Command, um, and Rob Joyce at the, at the Cybersecurity Director of NSA. So that's a great people that they put out a number of uh, executive orders to get, uh, get government cybersecurity better, and yet we still have not responded in an effective way to create deterrence in the cyber domain, right? We still have a lot more to do in that space. Our companies are being owned every day. They're being owned by nation state actors, along with other criminal actors, oftentimes who have nation state endorsement, right? And so we haven't yet sort of been punching the bully on the playground in the face in front of everybody else to stop him or her from bullying. And yet we see it continuing to happen. And so it's no surprise. And so there's more to be done on that front too. And again, this sort of America being less engaged, less willing to be aggressive in the world and be out there and sort of really stand by, by her word, I think is, is creates a situation where we're allowing ourselves to be owned constantly in the cyber domain. In the cyber domain, uh, much like <clears throat> the non-cyber domain, the U.S. is is a is an open country. Uh, you know, we, we yes, we have borders, but we are a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of capitalism. Uh, we we let a million flowers flourish in China. It's a top down uh, it's a top down political structure. There's only one entity that's allowed to participate politically. That's the Chinese Communist Party. Is it is it possible that the Chinese model of top down control is going to lead to better cybersecurity for them? than our open society is for us. And how do we how do we kind of bridge that gap? Can we really go to a uh, to a different model, to a deterrence model in in the cyber realm when we live in a country that's completely free and open? Yeah. Look, I mean, Les, I don't think it's a problem that's unique to the cyber domain, right? Our our freeness and openness 
make, gives us challenges in all sorts of ways, right? We allow, uh, we allow hundreds of thousands, millions of, of foreigners into our country every day, constantly, both as immigrants to be here permanently, uh, green card holders to be here also on a permanent basis, um, and on visas for long-term to educate them and the like, right? Um, and, um, and we allow goods and services and our own people to flow across borders with, 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 you know, with, with, with a huge amount of freedom, right? Um, and we don't vet them the way that other nations do. You look at how Israel vets every flight. If you've ever been on an El Al flight and gone through the screening, right, or gone through the screening at the border of Israel, right, you see a country constantly under stress, constantly under threat of, of terrorism, surrounded by, by countries that might not, be, uh, might not be friendly to it, oftentimes are not, have been not friendly to it, right? And you can see what, happened, what it takes to live in a society like that, not just when you cross the borders, but even within Israeli society, right? You look at our own allies in the United Kingdom, you see the number of, of, uh, of cameras and surveillance systems they have all around, their, all around their society, right? It's very different in the United States, right? We're used to a different level of freedom in this country. So it's not just in the cyber domain that we expect freedom. And so is it easier to control a people and maybe to defend them when you have a lot more control over them? Perhaps, but that's not the country that we live in, nor is the country we wanna live in. And so I worry less about, well, if we were, if we were more like China, right? A more, uh, more authoritarian, right? More totalitarian, would we be better cyber protected or better protected as, as a nation? You know, maybe we could debate that, but the reality is we're not going to go down that road, nor should we, right? And so the question then becomes, okay, how do you defend uh, the United States in the cyber domain, right? One answer could be, we should do what we do in the traditional domain, right? Even though we live in a, in a democratic free society, we believe that the American government should defend us against foreign nation states. So if a Russian bear bomber comes over the horizon, right, it's not Target or Walmart or George Mason University that has surface to air missiles to defend against that Russian bear bomber. It's the U.S. government, right? Yet in the cyber domain, we expect exactly the opposite. We expect George Mason University, uh, every mom and shop business in America, and Walmart and Target and Citibank and J.P. Morgan to defend against the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans. And that doesn't make sense either, right? Now, if we were to put the U.S. government in charge of that, right, what would have to happen, right? Would we need would we need to identify the quote unquote borders of the U.S. internet? You can't identify them, by the way, but let's say you could, right? Would we want to put the U.S. government sort of standing guard at those borders and conducting surveillance? Probably not, right? The American people probably aren't prepared to have that kind of surveillance put in place. So then the question becomes, in the, under the U.S. model, right, how do you defend against nations in cyberspace? And one answer to that is a much tighter partnership between the public and private sectors, uh, much tighter partnership within the private sector amongst companies and industries to really defend one another. You're never going to beat the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians or the North Koreans, if you're one company, even a big company, you're not gonna be able to defend yourself. They have virtually unlimited money, virtually unlimited human resources. So you gotta come together as multiple industries, multiple companies, and then ultimately the government partnering to identify the threats and protect our nation in the cyber domain. Um, you know, And that's one of the things that's unique about the United States. Only in the US could do that effectively and still keep the freedoms and, and, and the system of governance and the system of, of, of economic capitals that we have and make it survive. So how do you see the National Security Institute playing a role in this dynamic, we are we are definitely at a pivot point in United States foreign policy making. Uh, the Cold War is over. The post Cold War era is over. The war on terrorism is not quite what it was 20 years ago. It's still around, but we are we are definitely in a new world. Bring this back to NSI. What is NSI's role in all of this? Well, you know, NSI has a point of view, right? We have brought together a group of people that definitely have a perspective on the world, right? We definitely have voices that that have different views and different ways of executing. 
uh, that particular view. But as a general matter, the folks at NSI believe that we ought to lean forward the world that America ought to lead, right? And so uh, in a world in which the political system today, whether in Congress or uh, or in the White House or in the executive branch, tends to view that responsibility in a, in a, in a, in a less forward-leaning way, right? NSI is here to provide ideas and, and thoughts and, and viewpoints uh, that say that, no, America should lead, can and should lead. Uh, in a way that's economically effective, in a way that's sustainable, in a way that protects our rights and civil liberties as Americans and those of our allies, right? Um, and yet we remain a leader in the world. And so NSI can help move that ball forward. And as these issues get debated, right, can contribute to that conversation with smart to the point ideas, right, uh, presented in a form factor that works for policymakers, right? You know, policymakers don't have the time to read 200 page reports, right? Their staffs might, but generally they don't either, right? In the modern world we live in, You've got to deliver your ideas in a short, easy to access format. You know, Les, you and I debated for a long time whether we should have a podcast, right? You won me over to the point of view that we should have a podcast. Now we're doing it. It's been one of our most effective tools, right? You also tried to convince me we needed a blog. I thought a blog was a terrible idea. It's generated some of the most interesting content NSI's put out there. And I know that people up on Capitol Hill and the administration read it. So, you know, we've really started to do things in a different way. Um, and we, we now provide papers that are not long 30-page papers. We, they're short bullet points, things you could read in an Uber ride on the way to your next meeting, right? And so to me, NSI can contribute both a perspective on the world, smart, sharp ideas by people who serve in industry and government and bring that that perspective to bear, and in a form factor that works for policymakers in both the legislative and executive branches. You know, last week in our in our 100th episode of the pod, we we talked about what the future challenges were going to be. We talked about an internet poll, a Twitter poll that NSI had conducted. One of the most interesting answers to that poll was, you know, what's what's the issue that's going to be confronting the United States? And it was internal political turmoil by far was seen by you know, our cohort, our cohort on Twitter as, as the biggest challenge. So looking forward five, 10 years, NSI is a bipartisan institution. Yeah. Uh, what, what can you and, and NSI and the rest of us be doing now to yeah. kind of think about and address those issues that we know or that we think yeah. are, are coming at us? They're already well, I think here, but they're, they're going to get worse. Yeah, I think there's a few things last night. So number one, when we have conversations at NSI, when we have debates or panels or the like, we always bring or try really hard to bring both perspectives on that issue to bear, right? My view is, even though NSI definitely has a perspective on the world, right? If you don't fight a fair fight, you're not going to win the world of ideas, right? You should have to be able to win on the merits. And so, you know, I had the benefit less of working for two members of Congress most recently who were really bipartisan consensus builders, right? Mike Rogers, who worked with Dutch Rupersberger at the House of Justice Committee to really find a bipartisan path forward from 2011 to 2013. 2013, 2015, you and I had a chance to work together for Bob Corker, who worked closely with his compatriots on the Democratic side, whether it was Bob Menendez. Um, right or um, or, uh, or or Ben Cardin from Maryland uh, when he was the when he was the uh, the ranking member of the committee right we were always able to find a bipartisan path forward we wouldn't always agree but we found a path forward and so if you look at what NSI has brought together it's this group of folks who want to serve in government who served in government before who served in industry who are venture capitalists right and who want to make a difference in the world right and can bring people together to do that, right? You look at some of our funders, they've funded companies from around the way, right? Bringing together diverse sets of founders. It's really been amazing. And you look at our, our the people we sent, we sent, we sent five Senate confirmed officials to the Trump administration, all women, mind you, right? NSI did, right? We've already sent four, three to four Senate confirmed officials to the, to the Biden administration just in the last, you know, not 10 months alone. Plus we sent another six staffers to the Trump, to the Biden administration. And so you can see that we're drawing from a cadre of folks, both senior and mid-career, who can really contribute to the conversation and take our ideas 
and our theories of the world and the things we're debating here and the debates we're having into the government, right? At the same time, Les, you know, uh, as, as, as a leader here at NSI, I've been unafraid to speak my mind on, on, on a variety of issues, right? After the killing of George Floyd, a lot of our fellows came to us and said, Jamil, you know, we really need to put out a statement. I actually, I'll be honest with you, Les, I pushed back. I said, you know, is it really a national security issue, right? This is a domestic security, domestic issue, right? One that's clearly important to our country, but do we as the NSI have a role to play in that? And at first I thought, no. And I, and I, and I sort of debated this with our fellows and they said, well, why don't you write something anyways and see how it looks, right? So I, I said I would, you know, and I was honestly just trying to think through this. And when I sat down to write it, I realized I actually got pretty angry and frustrated where we were as a nation and what had happened. Um, and, and the fact that I didn't think it was as critical a national security issue as I came to realize it was. Um, and, and we then put out this piece on the, on, on the internet and we, we told everybody about it. We said, here's what NSI's view of it is, or at least my view as the founder, right? And here's what we're gonna do about it, right? We created some actionable things that we wanted to do. And we've now started to execute, those, execute on those, try to create a pipeline of diverse candidates, diverse individuals into the national security community. I looked around my own fellows uh, you know, at NSI and my leadership team and my, and my, and my uh, advisory board and I realized, you know, for uh, for a think tank and academics that are run by a Muslim Republican, right? It wasn't it wasn't as diverse as it could be. And I started to reach out inside my own circle, the very circle that I had built NSI from, a one two degrees of separation from all of our fellows and our advisory board members. And I realized there were just people that we hadn't reached out to, not because they weren't there, they were there. We just hadn't reached out to them. And so we we made a commitment to doing that more and building that pipeline. So there was a broader pipeline of people to reach out to. And the same was too less after January sixth, right? On January sixth, we saw an outright insurrection. We saw the most one of the most appalling things I've seen Americans do to themselves in this country, right? We at Americans attacked the capital of the United States. And so after that event, again as the founder of NSI, this is clearly a national security issue, it's clearly a domestic uh, insurgency that could have had catastrophic consequences for our for our nation and its role in the world, and I wrote about it. And I expressed my views and and the views of 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 of, of I, I didn't speak on behalf of the institution but as a founder, you know, I expressed my views and um, and I think people took it seriously. You know, look, not everybody's going to agree with me on that, right? Not everybody's going to agree with where NSI comes out on a variety of issues, right? Even within NSI, we have we have debates. We, you know, these papers come out, they're the views of the authors, right? There are disagreements about them. We have we have open, candid conversations about them, right? And a lot of times we'll put them out there on the table. You've seen you you run our podcast that we're on today that every other week we bring together two Republicans and two Democrats to argue about the national security issues of the day. So there's a lot of debate within NSI. Um, but I think that debate is important. We have gotten too used to in this country yelling at one another without trying to find a path forward. At NSI, we're bringing these issues to the table. We have heated disagreements and we try to propose a path forward that's best for our nation. So let me ask you about uh, what we used to call the Reagan coalition, which was traditional and free market country club Republicans plus white ethnic Democrats. Uh, and then a smattering of some other groups, but it was it was in today's terms kind of uh, the Chamber of Commerce types plus what we would now call the Trump voters. What is what is the obligation for us as internationalists, us as kind of mainstream pro-U.S. leadership group uh, in the world, uh, to to go and talk to those Trump voters, the folks? who would prefer on, on our side of, of the political divide, who want to turn inward, who uh, have a more isolationist view, who are, yeah. who are willing to build walls between us and the world. What obligation do we have to go to those people who were in that Reagan coalition with us 40 years ago and try to bring them 
shall we say, closer to the light. Yeah. Well, look, you know, Les, I think it's I think it's less about the Reagan coalition and more about attracting a broad swath of Americans of all backgrounds, right? Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of, of gender identity, and regardless of, of political theory, right? Democrat or Republican, right? Um, I believe that America has a critical role to play in the world, right? And that the American people want us to play that role. I don't think the average American really believes that we should focus back here at home and withdraw from the world totally. I think the average American believes that we should lead in the world. They just don't understand how to do that and also deal with our challenges at home, right? And what that takes less to, in my mind, is not a sea change of American view on the world. I think the American people are with us on this question. I think that we lack leadership and have lacked leadership for years in this country to bring that message to the American people, right? It doesn't mean we haven't done it. We haven't tried to at times. It doesn't mean at times some portion of our national leaders, presidents, leaders in Congress haven't brought this to the American people and said it to them. But I think as a as a society writ large, we've lacked firm leadership on that front um, for quite a while, right? And and you could we could debate why that is. We debate is it because of the Iraq War? Or is it because of uh, how we handle the aftermath of 9/11? Does it go back to uh, the peace dividend that Bill Clinton took advantage of? Does it go back to something fundamentally challenging about what Reagan Reagan's view of the world or H.W. Bush, right? Or is there a problem with the current most most current three presidents who want who want to retreat from the world and want to end all endless wars at all costs? Right. Um, we can debate who's faulted it, right? But the fact of the matter is that if you poll the American people about the role America will play in the world, they consistently take the view that America should, can, and should lead. It's when it comes to politicians who are saying, "Well, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. We can't both lead in the world." and solve our problems at home, when in fact, there's a huge commonality between those two things, right? America's interests out in the globe and America's interests here at home are the same, they're consistent. Our morality, our philosophy is consistent at home and abroad. The problem is at times our morality, our philosophy is broken down here at home, right? And that breakdown then allows us to think, well, how can we possibly go out in the world um, and talk about our views of the world when we're so broken here at home? And it's true, Les, that we have to bring our nation back together. But we don't have that doesn't come at the cost of being involved in the world and being out there and leading the world. We can and should do both. And I think the American people believe that we just haven't had leaders who carry that into effect in recent times. Talk a little bit more about uh, this this pivot that NSI has taken towards working with the legislative branch in this context. As you have described it, the last three presidents have been disappointing in their support for a robust U.S. role internationally. Congress has been maybe, uh, interestingly, a little bit more proactive in the international realm. It has certainly been uh, more steadfast in certain policies. We've seen uh, just in the last two administrations, you know, last three administrations, Obama went into the Iran nuclear deal. Trump went out. Biden's trying to go back in on the Paris Climate Accord. Obama went in. Trump pulled us out. Biden put us back in. Congress is a little more steadfast and is a little more of a a better long-term play, it would see, it would seem to me. Do you think NSI can can build towards a more regularized future for the United States and less veering back and forth across the highway if it looks to Congress for more leadership? Well, I actually think that it, it, part of it is going to Congress and, and, getting, and getting Congress in the right place. But, you know, Congress has its, own, has its own version of polarization, right? It's not just that Congress has been more consistent on these issues. There have been other areas where Congress has been more polarized and unable to get anything done effectively. And so Congress has its own challenges. The reason why I think we decided to focus on Congress was because there's there's a diversity of voices there, right? When you have the presidency, you have one president, regardless of where where NSI is or any other institution is, right? Affecting the views of the presidency are more difficult, right? You can affect the lower level folks, you affect the policy folks in the administration, but there's a lot of them. And as a smaller organization, you have to figure out where to concentrate. 
If you focus on the key national security com committees in Congress and the members on those committees and their staffs and educating them, right, you could have a very real measurable impact fairly quickly. And we've already shown that, right? We've, you know, we've been asked for technical assistance on various pieces of legislation uh, from members all across the aisle, including members who I think would never agree with NSI on almost any issue, right? Um, and we've given them feedback in the in the context of technical assistance, and they've they've implemented a lot of that feedback. It's actually been amazing to watch members of Congress actually take in, you know, what we think are smart ideas and say, oh, you know what, I I have this other point of view, but I can see your point, and let me let me adjust these things. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of that happen. I think there's a real opportunity there. I also think, Les, that given this diversity of views on and you know in Congress, because there are 535 members of the House and Senate combined, uh, that you can identify bipartisan consensus builders, people who will come together, particularly on national security issues. You know, I just think to myself about the kind of people that NSI has worked with in the past, people like Mike Gallagher, Mike Waltz, Alyssa Slotkin, Abigail Spanberger, right, Chrissy Houlihan, right? Uh, these are members of the House who are in a very partisan time in the House and yet have been able to work across the aisle with, with their colleagues to identify uh, uh, problems and work them to solutions, right? Uh, we lost a great member of Congress and Will Hurd, uh, but he was another one of those. In the Senate, you see folks uh, like Ben Sass, like Kristen Sinema, like Joe Manchin, like Bob Menendez, right, um, that that are willing to work with the other side. Even folks like Lindsey Graham, who's become viewed as sort of a, a spokesperson at times for the former president um, and, and sometimes out there. Lindsey Graham often has his work for a long, long in his career to find bipartisanship. Richard Burr and Mark Warner, right? Tim Kaine, right? Uh, the senators from here in Virginia, right? Um, they have really demonstrated the ability to bring people together, identify problems and try to solve them. Right now, the question becomes whether the polarization that's been created by our political system uh, will continue to affect them, whether they'll actually be able to get things done. You saw a lot of people being very critical of Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin on the left for, for holding up the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure, solar, solar infrastructure package. You saw a lot of Republicans critical of, of uh, Mitch McConnell for for. Uh, extend the debt ceiling in order to try and find a consensus path forward and create some fiscal discipline. I find that crazy because that's exactly what you want people to be doing. You want Democrats to resist huge amounts of social spending and, and try to find a fiscally smart path forward. You want Republicans to come to come to the center and try to find some path forward on debt ceiling in order to get discipline, right? These are things that, that historically Republicans and Democrats and the average American people have wanted, but we're so polarized today that we actually get, dig even deeper when these things happen and we criticize our, our our members of Congress for trying to find solid consensus paths forward. So NSI is four years old. Uh, where, what do you want to accomplish in the next four years? Wow. You know, Les, if you had asked me where, where we would be in four years when we started this thing, I wouldn't, I couldn't have told you we'd be here. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed you if you told me we created a new master's in law program. We had a new specialization uh, in national security for our Juris master's students. Uh, I, you know, that we would have added the dozens of new classes that we have for our students, that we would have had uh, placement programs that place our students in, uh, in, in, in great jobs, that we would have a partnership with Cambridge College where we're trying to recruit a diverse pipeline, uh, pending partnerships with some HCB, HBCUs, right? I wouldn't believe any of those things on the academic side. I much less would I believe that we had this amazing board of advisors, this amazing group of, of young up and coming fellows, that we would have sent so many senior and mid-career folks to both the Trump and Biden administrations I wouldn't have believed any of those things. And, and a lot, I wouldn't have believed if you told me that a, a, a senior senator who NSI would almost never agree with would have their staff con connect with us, ask us for our advice. Us, we would give it to them from, from 15, 10, 12 of our fellows and the advice would be taken and they would release a bill substantially modified from, from what they had originally put out there. 
in part because of the advice we gave. If you told me any of those things less would happen, I wouldn't believe you. So I want to see more of that. I would love it if NSI were able to grow a little bit and, and deepen its roots, um, become more established, and, and, and be able to create more alums from our both our fellows organization, but also from our staff who are sending out in the world who are doing great things. Um, you know, I want to see more of that. So I'd love, I don't, I don't see NSI being, you know, uh, adding another 50 staff, per, staff people, right. Or, or growing, you know, you know, by 10 X, right. But I see a steady state growth path for NSI being more involved, more influential. And, and I think also going back to influencing the executive branch and providing our views and thoughts, uh, influence may be the wrong word, informing the executive branch is more, is more an appropriate word, you know, giving the benefit of our thoughts and advice from the outside in a nonpartisan way, uh, and bring that expertise to bear. Um, I, I want to see NSI be able to be doing both that on Capitol Hill as well as uh, in the executive branch. So over the next four years, I'd love to see that happen. And frankly, I'd love to rebuild that American consensus around the idea that Americans should lead the world. And by the way, that's not just going to members of Congress and, and their staffs and, and people in the executive branch. It's going to the American people. And so in a lot of ways, I want to take our views, our podcast, our blog, our, our, our show on the road uh, to uh, various parts of this country, um, not just the not just the East Coast and the West Coast, but to that heart of America where the bulk of our manufacturing, the bulk of our farming, uh, the bulk of our of our services are delivered from, um, so that the American people can see that there is a reason for America to play in the world, that there is a benefit to them, and that at the end of the day, America leading and leaning forward is a positive for our national security, our economic security, and for the average American. Camille, this has been great. Congratulations to you and NSI on four amazing years. And uh, we look forward to the next four. Well, thanks to you, Les, for being a leader in this. And thanks to all the audience for listening. If you like this, tell your friends, right? Get Send them a copy of this podcast. Send them the, the statements that we wrote after January 6th, after the killing of George Floyd. Send them to the work that NSI is doing. We're, we're actively out in the world, but we depend on you listeners to get the word out there about what we're doing and to, to repost it, retweet it, push it out on social media, put it on LinkedIn, right? Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your colleagues, um, and thanks for listening. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonmatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for producing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.